The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it began in Japan during a period of isolationism, but it escaped its surroundings, and it now might be the most widely used and misunderstood form of poetry ever. Haiku. It has been extremely important for me, Jack Wilson, your humble narrator, and yet, ever since this podcast began, I have had on my to-do list of episodes a single title, Hating Haiku. Why is that? Why would I do an episode on hating something I love? I will explain that mystery and look at the life and works of Matsuo Basho, Haiku's greatest master, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Oh, it's a race to sip that last sip of coffee. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Still doing great. Thank you very much and ready to dive in. Let's get this out of the way. I love haiku. Love it. Love, love, love it. It has been extremely important to me in my life, and maybe that's been true for you as well. And yet, every time I talk about it, and I've done it a couple of times here on the podcast, I get emails and tweets and whatever from people who say, why don't you like haiku? You're missing how wonderful haiku can be, people. Let me say it again. I love haiku deeply, all the way to my bones. You do not need to tell me that I should give it another chance or that I have misunderstood haiku. I'm telling you right now, I understand haiku and I love it. So why am I so conflicted? Where is the conflict? Nothing in literature has caused me greater pain. I don't think. I know this sh- <laughs> I know this shouldn't be a big deal. And yet it has been for me. Maybe you have things like this in your life too. I had a long stretch where I could not figure out how to get over it. And now I think I finally have. I think I finally have. So here's what we're going to do. Let's start with love. Let's begin with love and then we'll talk about hate and see if we can convert that back to love. But before we do that, let's hear from a listener. Speaking of love, my listeners, all of you guys, simply the best. This is a good example. Subject, H-O-L, Ebert, Cinema, Train, Life. Good morning, Jack. I was deeply touched by your last episode about Roger Ebert. It brought tears to my eyes towards the end, Listening listening to your musing about life, slash cinema, slash trains, slash station, slash journey. I grew up in China. While at Peking University as an aspiring student who wanted to study abroad, American movies were not just entertainment, they were learning materials. That was when I fell in love with movies. That magical optical illusion with a special kind of storytelling that elicits all kinds of feelings. We watched them sometimes multiple times trying to learn vocabulary, idioms, slang, and to understand Western culture. Finally, on September 1st, 1996, I landed in New York City with $500 in my pockets and big dreams for myself. My love for movies continued, which led to the discovery of Roger Ebert. Even though English is not my native tongue, I recognize good writing when I see it. His reviews were like Bibles. I read them, memorized them, and used my saved pocket money to rent his recommended movies from the nearby Blockbuster, a name only old people know. <laughs> yes, well, put me in that category. My kids just asked me about Blockbuster. It came up on some show where they were talking about the Blockbuster smell, and my kids said, do you remember the smell, Dad? I think it... Not sure what it was in. Maybe The Sopranos. Something from that era. Remember the smell? Yes, I do indeed. And the colors and the feeling of excitement when entering the door. Even in the parking lot, I started to feel it. What will be in stock today? What will I get to watch tonight or this weekend? Something I missed in the theater? Something I get to watch now? What will be part of my life? 
for a couple of hours, that feeling of anticipation and discovery. I'm not that nostalgic for the blockbuster days. The world is better now. Streaming is superior. I'm still glad we have actual movies to go to. That's an experience I wouldn't want to give up, the movie house. But for watching at home, it's better not to have to drive somewhere and hope something is in stock and and take what's there. Take what they happen to carry and so on. Streaming is better. Okay, back to the email. Our listener says, To me, a movie is the perfect vehicle to tell stories, explore the human condition, and search for the meaning of life. And Roger, who truly loves and cares about movies, had that special talent of teasing out the essence of the film and making acute observations about characters. So thank you for creating this episode to celebrate Roger's work. It really brings back fond memories. I don't remember how and when I discovered your gem of a podcast, but I look forward to more thought-provoking episodes to come. Many, many thanks. Regards, she. P.S. My daughter also went to college last year. As a mom of an upcoming college sophomore, I understand every word you said about parenting. Oh, she, this is such a wonderful email. Thank you very much. Landed in New York City on September 1st, 1996 with $500 in your pockets and big dreams for yourself. That is so amazing. What a sentence. I love that image. And I love the image of learning English by watching movies. I was unlearning English around the same time. If you've ever learned a foreign language, especially if you've learned it as an adult, little kids who grow up bilingual or multilingual don't have this problem. For them, everything is fluid. But for grown-ups, teenagers and older, the problem is not thinking in your native language. It's a huge obstacle to get beyond. How do you not think in English when it's hardwired? And so we... Language learners would talk to each other about the milestones. Can you think in Italian yet? Or are you still translating everything in your mind? Are you dreaming in Italian? Those were a couple of good milestones to cross. I guess in 1996, I was still learning Chinese, doing the same thing. But we might have crossed paths first in Beijing, where I was in, uh, when was it, 94? And we might have crossed paths in New York City. I'm sure I came back through at some point in 1996, probably to visit Mike. You and Mike might have been neighbors. Also, big dreams for that guy. He probably didn't have $500 in his pocket. He was living in a Chelsea apartment. This was, this was a good, this is a good Mike story from back then. Mike worked at this place that was doing some kind of survey of their employees' housing costs. And someone conducting the survey mentioned to him, that he had the second cheapest apartment of anyone at the company. And Mike found out whose apartment was cheaper. And he talked to the guy and said, where are you living? How did you find a cheaper place than mine? And the guy said, well, it's a pretty rough building. And Mike said, well, so is mine. That's why it's so cheap. I can't believe it. How bad is yours? And the guy said, look, in my building, none of the apartments have locks and some of them don't have knobs. And Mike tipped his cap. That's a little cheaper than even Mike wanted to go. Okay, she, I am so glad to have you on board as a listener. Welcome to the History of Literature. And the reason I shared your email with everyone is because this is such a reminder of what great literature or great writing or great art or great passion can do. It transcends the particular and becomes universal. I don't have much in common with Marcel Proust. I've always known that. I mean, we're both males and both white, I guess, European descent, but he's French, he's Jewish, he lived a million years ago, he's gay, and he was rich. And yet I love him. I don't have much in common with Sappho, and I love reading her poems too. I do have a lot in common with Roger Ebert. We're both from the Midwest. He's a generation I know well, thanks to my own dad, who's roughly from that same period. And Roger and I both spent lots of time in Chicago, loving that city. He has a sensibility I can appreciate and share, and yet you can share it too, she, and you have none of those things in common with Roger. It's a reminder that beneath all the trappings, there are human feelings that let us enter into deep sympathy with one another. 
I've never been to Parisian high society and frankly don't really care about duchesses and princesses, but I can identify with feelings in Proust like the feeling of longing and misunderstanding and excitement. Those are all things I've felt at parties and that mattered to me. I might not recognize anything about a movie. Maybe it's about the the world of Japanese samurais or ancient battles in Troy or a deep sea expedition. All things I've never done, maybe don't know much about, but I can recognize an underdog or an unlikely hero or the feeling of discovery of a new place. When an essayist is good, like Roger Ebert, he finds those underpinnings. Maybe it's a mother-child relationship. Maybe it's the recollection of a first love. Maybe it's the feeling of being underappreciated by the people being asked to judge your work. There's a human element boiled down, the essence of being human, which comes out of great films and great art and great storytelling. And there's a joy and a passion with which that feeling is conveyed. And those things translate across space, across time. They translate and transcend. So thank you for confirming what I suspected. I have a bit of a soft spot for Roger because he grew up near me and we shared a city for a while, but it's not required that I do. The overlap between us can work even without those superficial trappings, which is a great setup for our topic today, haiku. This is the great reduction of life and sensibility into a moment, into the briefest of moments that can unlock memories and feelings and entire worlds. Let's look at the great master of haiku, Metsuo Basho, and see how it works after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Matsuo Basho was born during the Edo period of Japan, 1644 to be exact near Kyoto, that great city of art and culture. It was the capital city then. The Tokugawa shogunate ruled from there. The Edo period ended with the restoration of an emperor, by the way, who relocated to the city of Edo, which was renamed Tokyo. But that was still over a hundred years away. For now, we have in the Edo period peace, arts, culture, also some isolationism, and a strict social order. It was what has been called centralized feudalism. And for fans of movies, yes, there are samurai, a hereditary military nobility caste. Basho, in fact, was part of this caste, although in a dwindling sort of way, his father was a minor samurai, and most accounts say Basho's siblings became farmers. Arts and poetry were flourishing during this period, Basho learned it in a castle while serving as a, as a servant to the son of a local lord. And when he left his service after the son died, suddenly he went to Kyoto, where he studied with a local poet of some renown. 
He also studied Chinese poetry. He revered the poets like Li Bai and Tu Fu, among others, and he studied Taoism. He didn't invent haiku. It was already being practiced as a kind of community or collaborative poetry. What we Westerners think of as three lines of five, seven, and five syllables, respectively. I'm going to have a lot more to say about this, by the way, but if you think of that as the haiku unit for now, it's not exactly correct, but just go ahead and think of it that way for now. In Basho's time, it was more traditionally used. That unit was used as part of a collaborative verse. Those 17 syllables, or in Japanese, it was 17 sounds, were composed by one poet, and then the poem, called a Renga, was completed by another poet who added two additional lines, roughly. Again, keep in mind that we've translated these ideas to suit English. The main point is that Basho didn't necessarily think of a haiku as the highest possible art form or the culmination of a poetic form, nor did he think of the haiku as being self-contained and intact. Later in his life, people started looking at them as standalone poems, and subsequent poets further developed that idea that haiku was the thing. Just use these. You don't need the extra two lines. And Basho, who didn't consider himself best at haiku, but at the larger form, the longer form of renga, became well known as the master of haiku, just taking those three lines again, thinking of it in Western terms, just thinking of that smaller unit as being what was brought out and examined of Basho. Basho said others can do that as well, and maybe some people did, but he was the first to be the best, if that makes sense. He was a master. Even today, you will see his haiku in temples or on monuments in Japan or in other aspects of society. I've heard that every single Japanese schoolchild knows at least one Basho poem, which we will get to a little later in the program. When he was in his late 20s, Basho moved to Edo, which, as I said, is now part of Tokyo, and met up with other poets there. He was a philosopher, a historian, and a kind of natural scientist, or maybe I should say an intense observer of nature. He started writing under the name Basho at this time. He, stu he studied Zen Buddhism and is often linked to it, although I've read some scholars who have said that Zen wasn't really his thing. I couldn't exactly follow their reasoning, so I won't present it more than that. That's something you can dig into if you want. Is Basho really Zen or not? It is said that this is the first poem I'm about to read you, a poem that is said is the first poem that he wrote in a new style, and that this style is the basis for subsequent haiku, including his. And along with the discussion of his new style, let me tell you what he did not like in haiku. Remember, there is in place a template. It's for, it's kind of like a trick, a game, a, a, a societal, I don't know what you would call it. Today we might put out snacks or, or welcome people to our homes in a particular way. Back then, welcoming a guest to a home would often contain this little ritual. The guest arrives and delivers a poem of five sounds, seven sounds, five sounds. The host then replies with two lines of his own, seven sounds and seven sounds. In English, we use syllables to approximate the Japanese sound. This can be misleading. Another potential form of being misleading is that these haiku in Japan don't necessarily have three lines. Often you see it presented as just a single line straight across, and the breaks are natural and derived from the context. And there can be departures from the number of the sounds. Here's the poem, though. Let's get to the actual poems instead of talking about the structure of the poems. That's kind of the whole point of this episode for me, is the, the difference between hating haiku and loving it. Let's, let's talk about what's in the poems. Here's the poem that's often credited with being Basho's first in the new style. On a withered branch, a crow is perched, an autumn evening. That seems so simple, so basic. A single image, really. There it is, a crow. There's no description of the crow's past, 
or an explanation of crows and what they do and if they're common around here, there's no story. We don't see a crow go to get a worm or attack a young child's hair. It's not building a nest. It's perched. And what else do we see? A withered branch. Withered, a beautiful word. If you think about it, time withers a branch. Even a glorious tree can be a bit shabby, have some personality, a bit worn down by life, a bit blasted by weather, but enduring. And it's autumn, the season of getting dark early, the season of leaves falling, the season of time passing and turning life into death. And it's evening. Evening is the day turning to night. Autumn is summer turning to winter. We're on the cusp of darkness and cold, but it's still pleasant out. It's not yet winter. It's autumn. My favorite season. And there sits a crow. And by implication, a poet who notices the crow, who stops, takes the time to notice, who records it as worthy of attention, as simple as an exhalation or a slight smile or not even that much, maybe a spark dancing in someone's eye. This is it. Don't look for more. You don't need more. You need this. You need for this to be enough. This is the world. This is life. See it. Experience it. Live it. That's what haiku does at its best. I'll get to a positive definition of haiku soon, but notice what I did not say. I didn't say the poet is clever, although many of the best haiku do have cleverness behind them and can be playful. I didn't say anything about five, seven, and five. And here's where I feel some sympathy with Basho, like he is my guy. What we see, the reason why I almost did a show called Hating Haiku, is that I love haiku like this one with the crow in the tree so much. They do so much for me, and we'll see some of that even more. See some poems that do even more. I love the way these poems reduce life's complexities and point out small narratives or moments and let the world breathe in these poems. And the way they celebrate and commemorate and put a person in and with nature. I love these so much. I love the experience of reading them, thinking about them so much that other kinds of haiku are like nails across the chalkboard for me. They screech in my ears. When someone says, oh, here's a haiku, I'm going to do political haiku. And then they, they write something like, George Bush wanted war. They killed my father, he said, by Saddam Hussein. Okay, I just made that up. I made it up in five seconds. You see haiku like this all the time. And I made it up in five seconds. It literally was five seconds. It, did, it is not hard to do. That haiku has five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, and there's no real point to it. It makes no point that couldn't be better made in a sentence or two. It's not revealing anything profound. It's riding on the coattails of an actual haiku. It's saying, got it, five, seven, five. I can make poetry. I can count. Here I go. Look at me. Look at how clever I am. Oh, people, my blood is starting to boil. And I'm sorry, but this really does irritate me. I'm trying to live with more love in my heart to test all my actions against that principle. Am I saying this or doing this or thinking this from a position of love? Or am I giving in to hate because it is so easy to hate? It's so lazy. It's the easiest thing to do. And the biggest question I have, which I won't answer now, is can I hate bad things like racism or racist? What should I do about that? Should I make an exception and hate them? Or should I just ignore them or treat them with sorrow instead of anger and hatred? Sorrow is a form of love, but is that too compassionate? Is that fair? Anyway, that's my problem and I'll deal with it. We're getting off the track. I'm saying it's not... It's not a simple thing to say I'm going to treat everything with love instead of hate, but an easier problem, one less fraught and one less philosophically difficult is 
what to do with these worst usages of haiku, the ones that really burn my candle, which is when people think, apparently, that putting together three lines of five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables is somehow turning a random thought into a poem. They dilute a great tradition. They reveal the poet's... I don't know, shouldn't even call him a poet. They reveal the speaker's parochialism. See? It sounds like I'm hating, doesn't it? I don't want to do this. One more thing. The worst of all is when they make haiku about their ability to count. Those are the lowest of the low. That's a hundred sets of nails on a hundred chalkboards. And for years, decades, I've been seeing haiku like this, and I truly did hate them. Hated, hated, hated them. This is what the episode was hating haiku was going to be about. Poems like this. I've seen so many of these. Again, I'm going to write one in five seconds. Here we go. Ready? I've got it. I'm writing haiku. Five syllables, now seven. Five more wraps things up. See what I mean? That does not tell me anything I want to hear. Yes, good, clever person. You tapped out five and seven and five on your fingers. There are two words for this kind of haiku, two terms. One of them is second grader haiku, which is pretty great. <laughs> yes, good job, grown up. You wrote a haiku worthy of what they produce in second grade. I'm glad you're also potty trained, presumably, and know your farm animal sounds too. I'm aware that this sounds like hate, but don't worry, listener, I'm getting to the love part. The second label for this kind of doggerel haiku is pseudo-haiku. When I heard that label, which admittedly was only about two days ago, I let all my hatred go. I can love haiku again, and I can love people who are engaged in pseudo-haiku. They're not hurting anyone. What's the big deal? It's better that they're doing something kind of fun, like a, a wordle or a crossword puzzle or a maze or playing tic-tac-toe. These are idle, harmless ways to pass the time. I had thought that they were harmful because they were diluting my beloved haiku form, but they're not diluting it. They're not crowding it out of the picture because what those poems are are not really haiku. They're distant cousins. They're like, they're like the plastic version of the Eiffel Tower that you buy from a guy who's selling trinkets off of a blanket. It's not the tower. It's not the Eiffel Tower itself. It's not architecture. It's a little toy for people to carry around. Okay, I'm not going to, to miss Paris because I don't want to see someone waving their toy tower around and think, oh, what do they know about architecture? That's not real architecture. That's not a great building. That's not a monument. No, pseudo haiku. Have fun, journalists and, and corporate employees on team building, icebreaking exercises. Have fun counting out your syllables. Clever people who want others to see your cleverness and who aren't really interested in, in the genuine haiku. Here's what I love about the example of pseudo-haiku. Basho seems to have felt the same way. Basho broke with tradition. The tradition being that people were exchanging these verses and they were caught up in the wordplay of it. And you can imagine the kind of poetry this was because I just gave you a couple of examples of it. Well, Basho took this form, created a new style. He drew upon his beloved Chinese poets, dating back almost a thousand years in the case of Li Bai and Tu Fu, and others more recent, and Japanese poets too. Basho was drawing upon, he'll often mention these poets in his own work, crediting their observation and saying, it's just like he said, or I feel the way he did. Basho said, follow nature and return to nature to be perfectly together with it and avoid the arbitrary interpretations of things. Or as he put it, about a pine, learn the pine. And about a bamboo, learn the bamboo. Those things are different. They speak for themselves. We don't need to make them symbols. We need to see them and experience them 
And the symbolism, such as it is, comes from that. It's not really symbolism per se. That's not the right way to write a haiku or to read one. We don't need some kind of crosswalk to tell us that a tree means growth and a vulture means death or whatever. Those things, those objects, the tree and the vulture, have those associations connected with them because those things have properties and attributes, and humans have been experiencing them for thousands and thousands of years. We see the moon. We feel a certain way. We intuit something about it. Being in the dark, looking up, seeing that beautiful glowing circle in the sky. We are individuals, and the thing we're observing is particular, and the flash of insight is specific and belongs to us, but the whole process has a universality to it as well. The poem with the crow sitting on the withered branch works because I know what autumn feels like. I know what a single bird on a tree does to me. I can share in that experience along with the poet. Maybe I don't quite capture what the poet felt. Maybe that's kind of like saying, is is your green the same as my green? Is your blue the same as my blue? How would we ever know? But there is significant overlap in his or her world and mine. There must be, because they thought enough to put it down, and I feel enough to read it. We are communicating with one another. And that brings me to another great point. Haiku, simple as it is, as humble and unassuming as it can be, it makes me want to see more of the world, be better at observing it, celebrate it more, observe more, all of that, because I want to share as much of that sensibility with that ancient poet or whoever it is writing as possible. I want to understand the feeling that a great sensitive observer felt, a great poet, a great person who loved life and revered nature and the experience of being alive. Why wouldn't I? And yes, you can write 17 syllables about George Bush, but that's sort of temporary and transient, right? We get a little pat on the head for that, but it's not going to shake my soul. If you wrote about a leader who was feeling uneasy about being a leader, that would be universal. Or about feeling uneasy about having a particular person as a leader, that might be more universal too. Poor schmucks like me have been feeling that way ever since there have been leaders, or have been poor schmucks for that matter. That's a different kind of poem. So, we can see the American Haiku Society has wrestled with this. I think that's their name. Or it's the, actually, it's the Haiku Society of America. They wrestled with this issue. They knew all about pseudo haiku. They started defining haiku to try to protect it against pseudo haiku in January of 1973. And they were still at it 30 some years later. They knew that, look, I don't want a virgin to hate again. But the simplest way to define a haiku is to say haiku, a three-line poem with the first line being five syllables, the second line having seven syllables, and the third line having five syllables. That's a definition that takes me nowhere. That definition, actually, what does that describe to you? That describes pseudo-haiku. That's all you need for a pseudo-haiku. But look, that's not real haiku. First of all, Not even Japanese haiku follows the syllable thing strictly or the sounds thing strictly. There aren't three lines necessarily and the syllables aren't the same as their sounds and they don't always add up to 17. It's okay to depart from that. And secondly, there's more important things to do than to get that right or to get that strictly uh, in accordance with some school teacher's definition of haiku. Secondly, 575 does not capture what makes haiku great, real haiku, not headline haiku, sometimes called, or pseudo haiku. And yes, I know that there are wonderful haiku poems that deal with subjects that you might not have found in the original Japanese versions. They deal with erotic subjects or comic subjects or psychological topics or or science, or other academic subjects, and maybe some rise above the level of pseudo-haiku and can be actual or worthy haiku. But what's our baseline here? 
What's our definition that we want to start with? What about the Basho tradition of haiku? What do those poems have? What does our crow in the tree haiku have that other haiku poems don't? Can we define haiku in a way that captures that? And the Haiku Society of America said, we will take a crack at it. (laughs) This is our job. (laughs) We got to draw some lines here. This was in 1973, and they said, haiku, one, an unrhymed Japanese poem recording the essence of a moment keenly perceived in which nature, that's with a capital N, is linked to human nature. It usually consists of 17 onji, Japanese sound symbols. It's the first part of their definition. This is from 1973. And two is a foreign adaptation of one. It is usually written in three lines of five, seven, and five syllables. <laughs> so I think they kind of caved and went with pseudo haiku. It's a definition a little too loose for my taste. Too much about counting. I don't care if people can count. It's not like they're counting to a million or counting digits of pi or rattling off prime numbers or something, which can get interesting. Counting to five and to seven and to five, two-year-olds can do it. Second graders can crank out haikus like nobody's business. Pseudo haiku. So even the Haiku Society of America said, wait, hang on, let's revise it. And they worked and worked. And here is their definition as it stood in 2004. Haiku definition. A haiku is a short poem that uses imagistic language to convey the essence of an experience of nature or the season intuitively linked to the human condition. Now, that's a definition I can start to get behind. There's not two parts where the second part is just basically saying Americans do something similar and, and, and count up syllables. They only have one part of their definition of haiku, and it is all about imagistic language, and it's about conveying the essence of an experience of nature or the season. Okay. Intuitively, that's a great word. That's correct, in my view. Linked to the human condition. Yes. Okay. And then they give a little discussion notes, which is interesting. They say, most haiku in English consist of three unrhymed lines of 17 or fewer syllables. They've got to nod to that, people. Otherwise, people are going to say, you don't know what you're talking about. I know what a haiku is. It's got five, seven, five, et cetera, et cetera. So they nod to that. They talk about the Japanese sounds, as I've explained. They say that actually about 12 syllables in English would be, on average, about the same as 17 Japanese sounds. So note that English, haiku written in English might be a little bit long. They say that traditional Japanese haiku includes a season word, a word or phrase that helps identify the season of the experience recorded in the poem, and a cutting word, a sort of spoken punctuation that marks a pause or gives emphasis to one part of the poem. In English, season words are sometimes omitted, but the original focus on experience captured in clear images continues. The most common technique is juxtaposing two images or ideas. Punctuation, space, a line break, or a grammatical break may substitute for a cutting word. So you see, you see in that poem that I read above, the one with the crow, there's a a cut there, there's a break, right? The crow is perched on the branch, and then it says an autumn evening. That gives you two things placed together melded together, one might say, and that gives you the experience. That gives you a little bit of movement. That's more than just a simple description. And it says, most haiku have no titles and metaphors and similes are commonly avoided. Haiku do sometimes have brief prefatory notes, usually specifying the setting or similar facts. And it goes on with a few more things. Then it says, various kinds of pseudo-haiku have also arisen in recent years. See the notes to Senryu below for a brief discussion. And then they give a definition of a Senryu, which is a poem, they say, structurally similar to haiku that highlights the foibles of human nature, usually in a humorous or satiric way. And that stands 
in for all of this pseudo haiku. So there you go. Lots of definitions for you. We are drawing a line between haiku and pseudo haiku. Do that if you want. Do pseudo haiku if you want. Write it. It's no skin off my nose, not anymore. But don't ask me to spend time reading it or doing anything other than smiling politely. With love in my heart, which is my goal after all, but not much actual engagement. I likely will not be as impressed as you yourself are with the writing of it. Whereas with Basho and those writing in his tradition, I won't just be as impressed as he was with himself. I'll probably be more impressed. So let's take our last break. We're done with pseudo haiku. (laughs) Okay, let's take our last break. And then finish up with Basho's life. And here are some of those wonderful haiku that set the standard for me, which pseudo haiku failed to meet. And before I leave the crow behind, there is something I want to share with you, which is that that poem, we have an earlier version of it. And I think if you hear the earlier version, you can get a sense of how just uh, the goal of being simple and being not trying too hard. Sometimes it can take a lot of revision to get there, but you can see the goal that is being uh, attempted and achieved and how Basho gets there. Okay, here we go. A reminder of the haiku that we have. On a, this is the final version. On a withered branch, a crow is perched. An autumn evening. If you need the punctuation, on a withered branch, comma, a crow is perched, period. An autumn evening. Now, we have an earlier version. Ready? On the withered branches, crows have just perched. A late autumn evening. Now, Look at the very subtle changes that have been made. That's a very fine haiku. I would not uh, disparage that haiku at all. It's wonderful. Paintings have been made from that version of the haiku. But look at the changes that are made in the revision to give you a sense of what Basho is after. He changed withered branches to a withered branch. He changed crows to a single crow. And he changed have just perched to perched. Last change, he changed a late autumn evening to an autumn evening. What is he doing with those Uh, modifications, those edits. In every case, he's simplifying. He's reducing. He's paring down. Crows have just perched. Okay, so we imagine them flapping their wings and and fluttering in and then being there. Well, we we can have that without suggesting. It's barely suggested crows have just perched. But it is suggested. They came from somewhere. They're not just there. They came from somewhere first, and now they're settling in, and they've just perched. They're maybe hopping around. They're moving. That gives us a a temporality that we don't have in the finished version. The finished version, a crow is perched. Just there. Look at it. You don't have to notice everything that came before. It's The image is there. You can bring in crows, other crows, if you want. You can look at other branches. We know this isn't a tree with just one branch. But we are zooming in to this branch and this crow. An autumn evening, a late autumn evening, what does that tell you? Well, now you're thinking about autumn having different periods, right? Early autumn, late autumn. We're not thinking about autumn. We're thinking about the different phases of autumn, and what does that do for us, really, other than distracts? So there we go. 
Get our finished haiku. It's harder than it looks. It's hard to get out of your own way. It's hard to say, if I simplify this already very simple poem, it will improve. I can improve it with simplification. This is Basho when he was 37 years old, writing this poem. And he's deleting things like moving from late autumn evening to autumn evening and changing the plural crows on their plural branches to a withered branch and the crow. Mm. Wonderful stuff. We'll be back with the end of Basho's life and more examples of his haiku after this. Okay, a few more facts about Basho. He was a servant, as I mentioned, and he and his lord and some of their friends wrote a long poem together. His lord died suddenly, and Basho seems to have given up the idea of becoming a samurai, and instead he started traveling. He appears to have had some affairs with men along the way. He wrote about those affairs, and and he was fairly explicit about it. I don't know that there's any reason to doubt that he was gay, although it does seem like Poetry was his first love, and once he talked, uh, at one point he talked about having affairs in the past tense, as if he had given up on erotic love as he got older. Although, we also know that he had some relationships with disciples. So, that gets a bit ahead of myself. He did have disciples, which, as you can infer, meant he had become famous in his lifetime. As a poet, his poetry was recognized quickly. Here's a style. It's simple, it's natural, and yet it is profound. It fit right in with those seeking a kind of purity in life, a Zen purity, one might say. He made a living as a teacher, although he seems to have wanted to be a bit more reclusive than that. He fled teaching sometimes, and he began traveling, traveling alone, or sometimes with a single companion. This is the other thing that truly draws me toward Basho, a desire to be alone and to travel and to experience life traveling alone. There's nothing quite like it. Let's say there are three things I like about Basho, three main things. One, he truly loved poetry and wanted it to replicate what he loved best about the earth, including life, love, art, friendships, nature, philosophy, Second, he was bothered by pseudo-haiku, <laughs> my man. <laughs> and third, he wanted to travel, and he traveled alone. And this was considered dangerous. At the time, on these main roads that were running through Japan, there were bandits who were lying in wait. But Basho did just fine. I did some traveling myself when I was younger, as I've talked about before. And there's nothing quite like being on the road in, let's say, Tibet walking from one stop to the next, hearing the quietest quiet you've ever heard, looking up at the moon and the stars, brighter than you ever thought they could be, and closer, and feeling the cold, thin air piercing your lungs, and your eyes are lively with the wind, and your own life energy, and your mind is alert, and your body has become something like a beloved object, like a battered old coat for a well-worn pair of shoes. You can consider your body with affection. Ah, it's tired now. Or, ah, it feels strong tonight. Or, it's empty. Or, it's full. It's a little drunk. It's here. Like the grass underfoot or the mountains gleaming in the distance. My old friend. I value the quiet of the moon, the tranquility, and the still breeze and my old friend, my body, my mind takes it all in. What it's like to be right here, right now, and feels the thrill of it all. Masho on the road, combining a season or a natural observation with this intuition, this, this insight into the human condition, is wonderful. I suppose we should get to his most famous poem so we don't forget it. This is the one that school children all know in Japan. I've been told many kids in America know it too. I suspect it's incredibly famous. Here we go. It's delivered in our three lines. An old pond, a frog jumps in, the sound of water. 
that's it. An old pond. A frog jumps in. The sound of water. What a great poem. You're there at the old pond. It's been there for hundreds of years, probably. Not eternal like an ocean, but old enough to have seen some things like an old man, a quality of timelessness to it, a pond that outlasts old men, generations. Maybe it's there when we're not. Maybe it has some wisdom to it, too. A frog jumps in. What could be more simple or more elemental? That frog wants to be there in that water. It does what it wants. Wants simple things. And then the sound of water. Not splash, as that line is sometimes translated. It's not a horrible translation, but it's a little too on the nose for me. A little too, hey, let's be excited. I like the sound of water, the immersion, the rippling, not the crash bang of a splash. Ha ha, surprise, splash. Big grin comes with splash, but the quiet blub, the subdued slight sound of a disruption to the surface, something like a frog going in and going under and then the rippling that fades back into silence. There we go again. That's all there is, and that's all you need. Haiku says, don't try to be too smart or too fancy. Unlearn all those things that you've been learning. Experience this instead. Just live with this small moment, but also know that small moments like these are big enough to be momentous in their own way. It's this frog jumping into this old pond is as dramatic as a war or a famine or a kingdom rising and falling. It's like Jane Austen writing about the rising and falling of a human heart while the Napoleonic War stays off stage. Yes, there's an enormous geopolitical event elsewhere. We get it. But we don't live in the elsewhere. We live in the here and now. And that frog jumping into that old pond is here. It was here long ago and will be here long from now, hopefully. It's here when war is beginning and war is ongoing and war is over. Times of war and times of peace. Napoleon may be raging and hugely important, but the human heart is important too. And here at this old pond, we're zoomed in as we zoomed in on a single crow instead of a whole flock of them. Single crow on one branch instead of a bunch of branches. We're zoomed in. The war is elsewhere. The frog is here where you are. It's here now, right here, right now. Sort of feeling like I've said my piece, and yet there are a dozen or more haiku I would like to share with you, all from Basho. So let's do this. Let's breathe a little ourselves. Let's let this topic breathe too. Let's do this in two parts. I know I promise that sometimes, and then there's no second part, and hey, what can I say? I do my best. This time, I'll try very hard to make the next episode all about Great Haiku by Basho. We've laid the groundwork for that, and we've heard a couple of good ones. Let's look at the end of Basho's life and end the episode with that. Basho became ill, and a friend came and urged him to think about his Jisei, the last poem he would write, traditionally a poem that a great poet writes on his deathbed. Mike and I did an episode on famous last words by authors, and we found some good ones, sometimes profound, sometimes unintentionally comic. Because you don't know what your last words are going to be. You might say something profound and then live a little bit longer and then say, I'm thirsty and need a glass of water. That's kind of what Basho was getting at here. This is a little bit different. This is the idea that a poet will write a poem on their deathbed when they're getting close to the kind of truth that might come from the end of one's life. Well, Basho kind of objected to this idea. He said, Jisei, my Jisei is simply the last poem I've written. They are all, they're all in some sense, said Jisei. Yesterday's poem was my last poem until I wrote one today. Today's poem replaced it. Tomorrow, today's poem will be replaced. How else could it be? Said Basho. 
There's something profound in that. Something that's kind of like him saying the pine is the pine and the bamboo is the bamboo. We invest these things with extra meaning, extra significance. And sometimes it's warranted and sometimes it's not. But that's for interpreters, not for poets, not for the thing itself. The thing itself should just exist internally without metadata like, well, as as Basho's last poem, we know that such and such, or, or to build that metadata into the poem like, hello, this is my last poem written on my deathbed. No, that's not what Basho wanted. That's trying too hard. That's doing too much. That's too much commentary and not enough thing in itself. The last poem, said Basho, should be like the poem of the day before with its own characteristics. It should exist. That's all it needs to do. It's enough. But trying to get it to do that and only that is challenging because we humans are thinking people. We do a lot of thinking. Sometimes we do so at the expense of something that needs space to be experienced without all that extra thought. Okay. Basho died in the autumn. He was traveling again. He started having chills and headaches. He attended some parties and visited some shrines. He dedicated a poem. He wrote a will, and then he died at the age of 51. He was carried by boat to the temple where he wanted to be buried. Over 300 disciples and followers attended. His last poem, as it turned out, was this one. Ill on a journey, my dreams still wandering round over withered fields. Maybe Basho didn't intend that to be a Jisei. It's Jisei enough for me. Okay, there we go. That will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Next time, lots and lots of haiku. We got all the hate out of our system. Maybe we should keep going with Basho's great successors like Buson and Issa and others as well. Why not? But for now, let's just stick to Basho. There are plenty, plenty of great poems of his we can celebrate and discuss. I'd like to just read them and let them live in the silence. But hey... And podcasters got a podcast, right? Somehow I have to add some value, or what am I doing here? <laughs> what am I doing here? What am I doing here? That's a good question. One I will not be answering anytime soon, it seems. My thanks to Basho for helping me to live in spite of not having an answer to that question, and to supply me with an answer when I'm not too busy thinking all my thinky thoughts. My thanks also to listeners... She, for the wonderful email, good luck to you and your college uh, son or daughter. Always like hearing from moms. And to all of you for taking a bit of time out of your schedule, helping me work through my hate and giving me my reasons to love. A million reasons already this year. Counting downloads with another million still to go. The dust is not settling on the History of Literature podcast, that's for sure. Although, it might not quite be dustless. Certainly not as dustless as Basho's White Chrysanthemums. Listen to this gem. That's the good part about haiku. They're so short we can squeeze them in, even now, as we're wrapping things up. Here's the haiku. White Chrysanthemums, even if closely looked at, bear not a speck of dust. Mm. That, my friends, is not a second grader poem. It's not a pseudo poem. That is the poem of a master. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.